I'm Will Manning, and I make knives in Jonesboro, Tennessee. I kill trees all the time. What? Okay, maybe not all the time, but like sometimes when I make when I make up. Well, how come is it not Dolan? <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you say Dolan. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What are Dawn. you doing over there, Amy? I don't say that, and it's not Dawn. It's Dawn. It's different. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Bidler. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Cut the Craft. My name is Brian Bidler. And I'm Amy Umble. We're here with Will Manning, a, as you heard a second ago, knife maker from Jonesboro, Tennessee. Hello, Will. Hi. How are y'all? <laughs> Good. We're great. Um, so to start out, you mentioned that you're a knife maker. Can you tell us what sort of knives you're making and maybe give our listeners like a basic knife anatomy lesson? Sure. I don't know how good the anatomy lesson will go, but I primarily make culinary knives or kitchen knives. And you really just have the blade and the handle, but you can get a little closer to the knife. And there's things like the bolster, the heel, the spine, the the tip, uh, the butt. All sorts of fun things. I mean, so we know that you have a bumper sticker that says, that reads, do the dang tang. Can you tell us what the tang might be? Oh, yes. The tang is the portion <laughs> of the blade that the handle attaches to. That's how I would describe that. How long have you been making knives and how did you get started? And spare no details. I want to hear about those buckle shoes. Those buckle shoes. I'm wearing them right now, actually, just for you. <laughs> um, I looked this up because I remember, like, the first knife that I was really like, this is my first knife. Um, and it was for my good friend Alex and his uh, girlfriend at the time, or fiance at the time, Allison, uh, when they got married in 2011. Um, and their anniversary's coming right up. It was March 27th. Uh, but I guess my sort of selfish nature was like, well, I could get him a wedding gift or I could buy this like <laughs> little grinder and like try my hand at making a kitchen knife. Um, and I used it. Uh, I used some steel from an old tractor I found in the woods for the nice. And wow. How did you get that? Did you have to take a torch and cut it off or did you? I can just see you like just Gosh. Pull, pulling part of a tractor <laughs> You like dragging I don't really it remember. You. It was like a, it was some, geez, it was some arm that was bolted on and maybe the bolt had rusted off and it was just sitting there in this pile. Um, and you just had to get to it before the farmer saw what you were doing? Well, this was actually uh, <laughs> back in the woods <laughs> behind where I worked at the time. So I was probably wearing those buckle shoes um, yes. <laughs> since I worked right, at right. a... A living history site in North Florida called Mission San Luis. Um, and I would definitely just take walks out in the woods. It was 65 acres. And I don't know, I'd go zone out out there when it was slow. But I came across this like old tractor and I was kind of hush hush about it because we worked with a bunch of archaeologists that would have probably like crucified me for touching <laughs> <laughs> so oh so it was like an old old tractor i mean it was ancient like, yeah so like prehistoric it was it stone <laughs> it was prehistoric it was actually bone 
a yeah. bone tractor. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so a cow. It was a cow, basically. A cow. No, it was, you know, it was old steel. I don't even know, you know, if the steel was any good, but um, they still have it. I don't think they use it. The, the knife <laughs> that I made. The knife. <laughs> Wait, so that means you said you said that was 2011? 2011. I mean, I'd probably dabbled in a dabbled with a few before that just a little dabbler a little dabbler yeah mm-hmm. uh, well i was gonna say i mean that means you're coming up on your 10-year anniversary of being a knife maker yeah we're gonna have a p- big party really oh. are we gonna we gonna um like have a little parade down the streets the street of jonesboro well i was just gonna like <laughs> carry my old dog daisy out the back steps while she like does her thing <laughs> <laughs> does her thing that'll be our parade yeah y'all are welcome to come oh oh great i guess it'll be this time next year so hopefully there's not another pandemic (laughs) (laughs) we can actually do things (laughs) so when i look at one of your knives and I've actually used a couple since I visited you, and they're really beautiful and a joy to use, actually. And uh, I've noticed that all of the elements are just seem so carefully calculated and thought through. <laughs> this is serious. Why, why are you laughing? Yeah, why are you laughing? So, and you you use reclaimed steel or laminates. Uh, steel laminates for your knives and that seems a lot like there's something about a juxtaposition that's happening there between like the carefully calculated elements and the risk of using reclaimed steel and you know first of all is that true um and secondly if that is a risk and it's one you're willing to take why is it worth it Ooh, could i add one question to that (laughs) sure yeah also you laughed a lot when amy said uh, that all of the elements have been carefully calculated. So is that not <laughs> Maybe that's a true, not true. <laughs> true question? Yeah, I don't feel like that when I'm in the shop. I, I mean, I, I hope that it becomes more and more expressive and less less calculated, but more well, of an intuit, intuitive sort of form of communication like you play music, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be my end goal is to not have to overthink anything. Um, mm. I'm a pretty simple person. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. That being said, I do definitely, you know, give it some thought which handle materials I want to use. And I reference, you know, knives I've made in the past that are favorites that just spoke to me more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's nothing worse than finishing a knife and hating it, which definitely happens. Um, so You're yeah, like, I got to ship that one fast. Right, get that <laughs> out of here. You know, throw it in the scrap bin. Um, send it to Brian's dad. <laughs> JK. He would love that. He would love that. Um, no, it's more like, don't do that again. So why is the the other the other part of the question is you're using reclaimed steel, and now it you know the way that you're talking about it feels a little bit more like you're working through the problem of making a knife with a little bit of improvisation, uh, intuition, and, you know, looking at past knives that you really like, you're kind of throwing in a risk factor when you're using reclaimed steel. How do you deal with that? And why is the risk important or worth it for you? Well, I do use as much reclaimed steel as I can. That being said, I am using less 
and less as time goes on, um, unfortunately. Oh, why is Only, it unfortunate? I guess because I'd rather it all be, be from a reclaimed source. But as I kind of get deeper into the world of knives and learn more about steel, I'm understanding that more of this reclaimed steel in my pile is maybe less effective for really thin knives. And, mm. you know, right now all of the cleavers I make are reclaimed. They're thicker. The steel can handle it. Um, so it's really a matter of learning about the steel you have in your reclaimed stash. And I can talk more about that if y'all are interested, but it's a little bit boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, what would be the ways you would go about learning about the reclaimed steel? It seems like, I mean, I know that there are places you can you can send your steel to get tested and kind of see what's, I guess, are you looking for the carbon content? You're primarily looking for the carbon content. You also want to see less, you know, impurity sort mm -hmm. of stuff. Uh, sulfur is not something you want a lot of in your metal. It's kind of dirty and manganese is going to give you a few warping problems. We've all been there. Been there, I know. <laughs> same, same issue with books and spoons, I know. Yeah. I, I hate um, when I cut down a tree and I'm like, this is full of manganese. Dang it. <laughs> yeah, um, dang it. Foiled again. But yeah, re really the way I do it is just shop test it. And if I can get decent results and I enjoy working with it, i.e., you know, it forges well and seems to harden with fairly simple procedures, I guess. It's worth testing, and then I'll send it to a lab. They're, the one I like to use is based in St. Louis. Um, St. Louis Laboratories, I think. It's a very clever name. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but then at that point, I mean, it's it's not... They're the only one. <laughs> right. It's not cost-effective. You know, I could buy virgin steel for, for less than the test costs, but... Mm. There's that satisfaction of, of using something that's already here. It's already been manufactured. It's already been used. And now it's sitting. Uh, I mean, it's not going to like clog up the planet. It's going to rust away eventually in someone's backyard. But I kind of enjoy the, the hunt and interacting with the people that puts you in touch with versus just ordering online. Um, yeah. And I was going to ask like where... Uh... If someone were looking to get involved in doing this and using reclaimed steel, it sounds like you have some sources. Is that like something in the knife community where people like, it, is that hard to find or are they, is, I mean, I know scrap metals everywhere, but you know, knowing the right stuff to look for seems like a separate thing. I don't think it's that hard to find, to be honest. Um, even knife suppliers sell reclaimed steel and it really is usually just drops from a factory and the drops are too short to make car springs out of and what's it what's a drop referred to oh, sorry a drop that's from my yield metal shop days just like scrap <laughs> like a oh okay a cutoff that they can't use gotcha so it's you know technically it's like new steel but then selling it to knife makers is I guess more lucrative than sending it to be recycled. Yeah. But it's good steel. And that's a good place to start if you don't have any sources immediately available. Um, I do recommend looking in the junkyards, uh, automobile springs, and then old saw blades are usually a, a good bet. But I don't think it's 
definitely do some testing on this deal. Um, <laughs> well, and, and old files too, right? Is that old is files? That a thing people yeah, are old still files using? are great too, and uh, you can get those for like a dollar a file on the you know wherever, or buy them by the pound at the junkyard if you can find them. <laughs> Look in the toolboxes of the old trucks; they're usually like stocked full of them. You wonder what they were filing back there. Like why they were like, we need to take the file on the go with us in the truck. To, I don't know. I feel like most of the time there's like, I need like a ratchet set and a few wrenches more than I need files when I'm ruining my car. Right. I mean, I feel like it comes down to they're going to get some sort of dollar value per pound. Oh, and so it's so, the people who are taking it to the scrapyard so are just like throwing to, stuff in there. Yeah, whatever they've got laying around. I mean, I think, I, I don't really know. That makes more sense. One thing I do want to add at this point is that just for example, I collected like 26 saw blades over the course of a year or two and I spent so much money getting them tested and three of them came back as like viable chef's knife steel. Wow. So that's just an example of like there's sort of this idea that all old saw blades will make a great knife. Right. But some won't. And just be cautious of that if you are interested in, in using that. I, I mean, just don't just don't sell it if you don't know what it is. Like, that's all. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or do and be willing to make it again. It, it, it just sounds like a best pra- practice to me. You know, yeah. you should, people should have confidence in the thing that they're buying <laughs> and you right. should have the ability to tell them, you know, what's in it. That's really good. Right. And if there are any listeners out there that want some reclaimed steel, just shoot me an email and pay some postage and I'll pack a box up for you. Oh, oh, that's nice. So, uh, so Will, you used to be in Jefferson, Georgia, and now you're in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Has that shift influenced your work at all? Is there Are there any changes you've had to make? Or have you met people that you feel an affinity in making with? Yeah, it's definitely um, influenced my work. I would say just knowing what I know about <laughs> my work. <and> me. <laughs> um, one, one major thing I had to do was build a shop, which was like incredibly daunting to me mostly because it was done long distance and i had to keep working in georgia while this shop here went up and Dang, I will never, that sounds stressful i'll never do that one again um, <laughs> so the shop in georgia was just a i mean brian's been there it was a little 12 by 20 cinder block shack that used to has a house a well pump in it and it had a dirt floor and low ceilings, and it was just a different space. That shop was on 50 acres in the woods next to a pond, and it was this idyllic kind of nature setting. And both of y'all have been to the shop in Tennessee. You can see like Taco Bell and the grocery store from our backyard. It's mm. very different. We're close to our neighbors who fortunately are wonderful people. So there's this new added element of community in my work because my time not in the shop is sort of spent in a more urban environment and I'm that much more aware of the people around me versus maybe the nature around Are me. your knives more like metropolitan now or something? Or like Gosh, I can't tell <laughs> you that. They're community-based, <laughs> friendly knives. Yeah, they're community-friendly <laughs> knives. They all come with a safety tip. Um <laughs> No, I've thought about that. I think really 
just having better lighting in my floor and mm. or in my in my in floor, floor. <laughs> <laughs> definitely thinking about the floor uh better lighting in my shop and a level a floor. surface floor <laughs> an actual floor that doesn't flood and doesn't um, i mean i think that changes my work more than anything just the the shop space the the lighting etc maybe my experience too right yeah that's all it comes down to is just the simple improvement of being able to see a little bit better <laughs> it just it seems like a, a more efficient work environment so i know that uh you had the opportunity uh was that two years ago when you went to go study with bill burke and learn a little bit about laminated steels it was 2017 so three years ago Whoa. Yeah, Three years ago. I know okay. it. To me, I see a pretty stark difference if I look back at your work before you moved to Tennessee and after. But I don't know if that is more like pre-Bill Burke and after your workshop with Bill Burke. But Right. So I guess for those of you who don't know who Bill Burke is, he's a, he's a bladesmith out in Idaho. And I guess you'd call him an old timer that he's been doing it for, you know, forever, it seems like. And he's incredibly talented and skilled and full of knowledge. Um and I saved up and went to study with him for five days. And it, it was pretty eye-opening um, and life-changing. And I went there primarily to learn about laminated steels. Just knowing about them, it seemed like... And laminated steel would also be Sanmai, which is a Japanese uh, three-layer steel with soft cladding sandwiched over a hard carbon steel core. And the benefit to that is you can leave that edge harder because it's protected by this softer cladding. So it's kind of like it's getting a hug. It's getting a hug. Yeah, basically it's protected. Um, so <laughs> and so quickly, if I could interject, um, as someone who doesn't, I feel like I'm probably the least versed in understanding steels and forging and that sort of thing. Um, and for those of you like me, uh, my question or my thought process is what I've heard is that a harder steel keeps a an edge sharp for longer, but there's there's like a give and take there that a harder steel is also more brittle. And so why what's the advantage of having a hard steel kind of sandwiched in between to, you know, a softer steel? What What does that mean? It keeps it from breaking when, when or if you drop it. Okay. That's all. But you've got it, basically. I mean, that's okay. like yeah. the perfect explanation right there. So okay. you have a trade-off between hardness and toughness. So it's about finding finding balance in, in life right. <laughs> and in life. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, in all things. Um, I have the word balance written in front of me right now. Ah! But yeah, uh, think about your coffee mug and how hard it is and it mm-hmm. breaks when you drop it versus your... Your piece of paper your, is really tough. Your your <laughs> yarn mug. My yarn mug your, is really yeah. floppy. <laughs> yes. Wait, do you have a yarn mug? No, no. Dang. I wish I did. It's a great idea. Are you going to make cut the craft koozies? <gasps> Obviously. That's a great I'll order, idea. I'll order a couple. Woohoo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Look at that. The money's already rolling in, Amy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, the other benefit to the sanmai or the laminated steel is that when you're sharpening it or grinding it if you're making the knife you're removing mostly 
unhardened steel, which just from an efficiency standpoint makes a lot of sense. Your knives seem like they're a lot of fun to make, like the laminated steel ones in particular. I mean, you have the magic tube. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, you got to tell us about For that. those of you who don't know about the magic tube. Trademark. Um, registered <laughs> trademark Heartwood Forge. So, um, but your knives, yeah, they seem like a lot of fun. And so do you enjoy making those more than other, than just like, I guess, what would you call it when it's not laminate? Just a solid steel knife or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I struggle with that because I call it mono steel, but then you mm. get these questions like, what does that mean? And it makes perfect sense to me. But so if y'all have suggestions <laughs> about what I should call it, let me, let me know. Single, single steel sounds too lonely. <laughs> yeah independent steel i don't know Ooh, yeah there you, go. there you go um oh i do yeah i love making it it's i don't know why it's so satisfying but it is so and will you tell us about the magic tube and not only its contents but the role it plays in the laminated steel yes it really just houses ferric chloride or an acid of some sort that will etch laminated steel or pattern welded steel which would be damascus um, and brings out the contrast in the alloys and it's not necessary you can get that contrast just with daily use and your natural patina building up on the blade but since everything is so internet driven and photo driven i think it's helpful to have you know very simple like contrast right there just so people get it and see it what did you call it pattern forged pattern welded i mean i guess that's a technicality i just call it damascus but okay. other knife makers will kill me for that so <laughs> with their knives no <laughs> um, no so um but so it's you know once you have the steel you've made your knife and I guess, is this right before you do the final sharpen or something like that? It's after you've done all the grinding and shaping and profiling and all that. Right. Um, I, I Yeah, after the final finish on the blade. And okay. that's either a machine finish or a hand finish, depending on which knife you're making. And so you, what are you doing with the knife? You just dipping it in that tube? Yeah, but the tube requires, in order for it to like really work, it requires some sort of music. Nice. What music have you found works the best some angry sounding hip-hop or like some some sort of droney metal works pretty well <laughs> drone well you're <laughs> surrounded by metal so that should be easy yeah i was gonna say metal music seems like a logical fit <laughs> good fit. yeah good fit. yeah um <laughs> you know sorry one more interjection on the laminated laminated steel is yeah. that it kind of allows me to use the reclaimed steel but extend the use of that you know because now one third of the blade is just the reclaimed steel oh as in you it gives you more bang for your buck as far as the as far as the reclaimed stuff goes since right. you said that was expensive right. to go get tested and uh, stuff like that exactly yeah it just gets me further down the road with a saw blade yeah it's a more efficient use of that single that you know that reclaimed steel that extends it so and so the is the cladding just made out of like a mild steel or what kind of or iron or you know what's that stuff right that's a good question so one more benefit or an added benefit if you use stainless cladding is that you now don't have to deal with all the nuanced care that involves that's involved with a like a full carbon steel blade um 
That yeah. that being said, you can use uh, any cladding that doesn't harden um, will work. So mild steel or wrought iron um, would also work. And another thing I've been enjoying doing is laminating bourbon barrel straps together with nickel cool and using that as the cladding so the folks that are into sort of the story of the materials um that's pretty awesome are so and when you say when you say straps from a bourbon barrel you literally mean those those metal uh hoops that are going around a hold helping hold a barrel together that's right okay yeah you use both a or have both a coal and a gas forge. Which do you use more often? And are there positives and negatives involved with those two different forges? Is there a tension within yourself, you know, um, that happens between using one or the other? Jeez. Um, Heavy question. I, I'm not qualified to answer this, but I'm going to just <laughs> respond to it. That's all we ask. (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, I used to use a coal forge, but before that I used a charcoal forge, which really is the way to go for someone getting into this and probably would be the smart thing to stick with. Um, Charcoal or coal? Charcoal. Okay. Um, Will you explain the difference between just straight up coal coal, um, charcoal, and clean coal, since that's now a thing? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sure. Uh, charcoal is made from wood, which allows you to use, you know, scrap wood. Do you have to make the charcoal or do you buy it? You can do either. I think making it is um, cost effective and, and enjoyable. Because you're basically just making a little fire. Yeah, or a big fire, depending on how much you're making. And it's a clean burning fuel and it gets just super hot if you have the right set up for it which is just some sort of forced air source a bellows or fan blower coal as we know comes out of the ground um and it's full of sort of toxic stuff um not very clean not good to breathe the smoke from you don't want to breathe any smoke kids but (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i've stopped using that mostly just because i haven't got it set up here yet and then what i use primarily now is gas and it's strictly just from an efficiency standpoint but my mentor skeeter like he used to hide his gas forge because he was ashamed of it and he's he's one of these old timers he like started in a blacksmith shop when he was five like getting paid a nickel a day to clean up and stuff so i think i maybe carry a little bit of guilt just because of who who Skeeter is, but it's, you know, it's efficient and you can, so you can dial it in and do your heat treating in it too. So why would you feel, why would someone feel guilty about using one forge or another? What's the, is there a culture among blacksmiths that, you know, it promotes one thing over another? Like what's, what is it that you're fighting against internally? I guess it's just that idea of technology that, you know, ultimately put historic blacksmiths out of, of business, you know. Mm. So it's sort of like the way you really know if you failed as a blacksmith is if you're able to pay your bills. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting. I was reading, I just got this book last night 
it's called Fewer Better Things by Glenn Adamson. And I haven't gone very far into it. It's about um, 20 pages in or something like that. And he's talking about risk and how we associate. Actually, this is from Chris Pye, I think. Or no, not Chris Pye. David Pye, who's a craft philosopher, basically. And he talks about the relationship that craftspeople have with risk. And maybe I'm just thinking maybe that has something to do with it. Like the the idea that you have less risk involved and more yeah, the more the more risk that you take out, the less uh, a craftsperson has to be in control of in order to get the intended result. Is that do you think maybe that touches on that a little bit? The use of gas over coal? Yeah, yeah. Like is gas less tricky to kind of master than coal is? I would think so, definitely. Um, And with a recent young student I had, you know, that's when I realized one main difference was teaching in gas is just kind of like a little soulless, like you're not teaching fire control, which I found like a meditative break between hammering Mm. uh, versus gas. You're, You're sitting there waiting and trying to socialize more. Um, which I thought was to the detriment of teaching and the student's experience. Is some of that coming because that's sort of something you, looking back, really valued from your time with Skeeter when you were first learning? Probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. But it it is true. There, are, Amy, the um, there is less risk, in my opinion, using gas, especially when you're making thin carbon steel knives. Those really like to just burn up and vaporize in a in a coal forge when you're learning. And again, you learn more about it and what not to do and how long to leave it in there. Um, but I can't tell you how many knives, you know, just burnt in half in my coal forge. <laughs> that would be the worst. You just go to, you grab the tang and you just go to reach in and you just pull it out and it's just the tang. <laughs> Yeah, that that happened all the time. I mean, um, and I didn't give it up for that. I still love it. And I think it's a great way to heat treat. If you're doing a differential heat treat, um, the coal forge really seems to excel at that. And a differential heat treat, is that heating up different parts of the blade to different temperatures? That's in right. Order to, okay. Yeah. And that's how I prefer to do um, the heat treat on my cleavers. Aside from upping the ante of Dwight Schrute's Bears Beats Battlestar Galactica by truly living behind her alliteration, the name Birchbark Beth bops out the mouth like calm breaths after swigs of moonshine, similar to the satisfied sighs of those who buy her many handcrafted baskets of various size and these itsy-bitsy backpacks which are best described by the manner in which they make people of all walks of life exclaim, "Ee!" upon seeing them. She'll even do custom orders if you ask her kindly. Her real name is Beth Homacraus, but her style is homostyle. Like homestyle, but with a friendly little, "Ay!" She and the things she creates, and being an extension of herself, certainly live up to this expression. 
a living that is indicative of comfort behind her homestrung products while also having a sense of affability. Like the feeling of those times you have blissfully run into someone you think highly of but don't get to see nearly enough. So, please check out Birch Bark Beth, a.k.a. Beth Homa Kraus, at homa-style.com. And have a good day, friend. Um, so does this fellow that talks about risk say craftspeople are risk adverse more? Is that what risk I'm gathering? Adverse. No, no. Um, he talks about, like, it's a little bit about trying to define what craft is. Like, what is craft? We use this term all the time. We throw it around. And he, part of his writing is delving into well, what are we talking about when we're talking about risk and craft and and is someone who takes more risk more crafty uh so it, or is there more is there more craft involved in using a um just I'll, I'll use my own example because i'm unfamiliar with metalwork so is there is there more craftiness involved in using a hatchet over a bandsaw and the balance between what is skill and are you employing more skill and more knowledge with a a hatchet because you don't have a blade that's you know always going the same speed and you can turn it on right. and turn it off you know there's like all these other factors that he's thinking about and trying to understand what it is that involves craft and risk and skill and how do they all sort of meet each other in the middle what makes a craftsperson and that's part of what we're trying to tease out with the podcast is like well you know what are what is craft and how are we thinking about it how does it influence our lives and all that sort of thing so it's just interesting to ask these questions from a variety of mediums i think and it kind of goes back to an earlier question when you asked about um jonesboro and if there's anything here, I think you were sort of hinting at the fact that Curtis Buchanan is a neighbor. Ooh, yes. Um, Tell us who Curtis is. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit. And, yeah, and I think anyone that's working with their hands is going to constantly think about their own process and ways to improve, you know, what they're doing in their little space in the world. And being around Curtis, he's a chair maker, which most of y'all listening to this probably already know <laughs> since Amy is involved with this. Um, <laughs> but he's a Greenwood chair maker. I don't know if that's even like the right term. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah, you, I'll let I you mean, introduce him. But <laughs> um, so I would say uh, Curtis is a very influential Greenwood worker who is um, has been working for probably the majority of his adult life making um, traditional Windsor chairs. And he's probably most people you're learning chair techniques from have learned from Curtis. <laughs> I'll put it that way. So yeah, go ahead. Right. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> sure. I don't even know where I was going, but I guess the, the gas forge versus coal forge thing, it's a, it's just a, refinement in a process where you say 
this this is what I want to be doing and <laughs> this is something I'm going to try and it either works or doesn't and you adjust your process. Like it's, it's kind of just the um, tension between am I doing this in order to make money doing this or am I doing this in order to make a living doing it? Or as Amy would say, craft a living from it. But, <laughs> you know, it's because in a in certain way, like for instance, within woodworking, um, I mean, Kurt, I've I've had the chance to meet Curtis and talk with him a little bit while visiting you. And, you know, he makes it very clear that the choices he makes are deliberate lifestyle choices and process choices over the choices he makes are like come sort of at a detriment to the production, the amount that he could be making, if that makes sense. But he's like perfectly content. He's just like, I like the sound of the tools. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. That being said, we we all do make choices towards productivity as well, maybe unconsciously because we're humans in a modern world. And an, an example, not to throw Curtis under the bus, but he does have a bandsaw and he does have an electric... Don't worry, Curtis, I'll take this out. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> the relationship with my neighbors is of the utmost importance. Um, but I'm saying I, I don't think... I, I mean, I think... It's, in my opinion, and I know it's an opinion, it's fairly natural to think of the efficiency. Like, Amy, you might prefer using a hatchet because it's efficient for you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's more simple. You, It's not efficient to take your bandsaw out in the woods, <laughs> you know, if that's right, right. where you want to do your carving. Yeah. Um I will also say that notice how Will isn't saying, hey, Brian, you're, I know you're doing this decision because of efficiency, because nothing about anything that I do is efficient. <laughs> um, I've seen you sew multiple books at once. Oh, man. Brian. Why you got to remember everything so good? <laughs> also, using, using Zencaster is way more efficient than like driving down here with a tape recorder. Right. But significantly less fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, so I'm going to hit stop recording and you can just, you have my address. We'll resume this in approximately seven and a half hours. <laughs> uh, all right, good. Um, so from the outside, you seem to have a great following and you're very, you seem to be a very successful crass person. Um, you have a wait list, a big social media following and a riot inducing quarterly newsletter. That looks like success to a lot of people. Um, do you feel successful and how, do, how would you define success? Ultimately, I feel like success comes with your happiness or your personal satisfaction and whatever source that's from. And for me, I think it's the uh, lifestyle of working from home, which induces happiness for me. You know, if I were doing this for money, I'd be better suited to just go out and get a, a job with benefits. You know, it's not, I'm not doing this because I'm getting rich. Um, I'm doing this because it allows me to work. That's just a byproduct. <laughs> not a, we all know that's not true. That's not happening. Um, you know, if the weather's like perfect for working in the garden, cause I'm just a hobby gardener, um, then I, I can spend the day 
outside doing that if I if I please. And if I'm to die tomorrow, you know, there's this question of did I enjoy yesterday, and do I have any regrets about about the way I lived my life? Um, so I guess personally, that's how I, you know, if you meet someone and they're not happy, you're wondering like successful doesn't really cross your mind. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And granted, I'm, you know, I struggle with being happy all the time. And I think that's maybe the, the quote unquote human condition, or as my brother and I call it the other side of the fence syndrome. Um, oh, as in like grass is always greener kind of thing. Right. Like, would I be happier if I had, you know good health benefits and a routine sort of 40 hour a week job. But recently I've been tracking my actual time in the shop and there's no way I could be in there 40 hours a week and be productive. As in you work significantly less than that in the shop. Right. Which brings me to my next sort of keyword next to this question is balance. And maybe that, you know, balance within your, whatever you deem your work in your life and your non-life but I feel like if they're just the same or close to the same then I don't have to think about what I'm going to do when I retire because I'll just be doing the same thing I want to be doing (laughs) right no I was laughing earlier when you said you know if I were to die tomorrow would I look back at you know today and regret anything about the choices I made and I was just giggling to myself because I was like if you died tomorrow you probably would <laughs> why'd I spend an hour with Amy and Brian my least favorite people on the planet <laughs> just kidding love y'all oh we love you too yeah and I think it's just a fluke that there's been you know the social media portion that that you know for now works to to keep the bills paid as shameful as that seems to say on this podcast. Um, I don't know. I I think it's like, I mean, one of our big goals, uh, one of our many big goals, in case you haven't noticed, we have many big goals, um, but is to kind of give people and a realistic portrait of what it looks like to actually be a full-time craftsperson. Because in a lot of ways, because of social media or internet presences in general, it's very easy to look at these things people are making and just be like, oh, that would be so nice to like just spend your time doing what you want all day. But and like there are a lot of advantages to it, but there's also some like downsides too, or like some realities you have to face if you want to do this full time. Right. And so like being able to ask, you know, you and others about them. Also from a selfish perspective gives me ideas on how to how to sort out my own things. <laughs> yeah, so are you not always just making beautiful books and tools? Brian? <laughs> Indeed not. Sometimes I have to track <laughs> finances and <laughs> figure out uh what's next and you know it's like always trying to plan 2 years out in terms of teaching workshops and stuff, which I did want to ask you about teaching, you know, workshops I think that wasn't something you've always done, but recently you've had you've mentioned at least a couple students. So what was what was the change? Uh, well, that's another product of um, Jonesboro and Jonesboro, Tennessee, and Curtis, um, and seeing that you know his shift of income went from primarily selling chairs to primarily teaching, and mm. that's something that all of us are going to have to face if we want to keep you know doing something we love at an older age where maybe I can't physically make as many knives as I used to. Um, right. But I can, 
you know, still get the same joy out of teaching others. Um, mm -hmm. Meanwhile, has it been pretty satisfying to see people like as different parts of the process click? Definitely. Yeah, it has. I mean, I have only had a few students and most of them were unofficial. I guess you say they're just friends that are visiting and it's kind of the my guinea pigs. But I am enjoying it. I'll be pursuing more of that. Um, I think we probably already asked the, does craft satisfy something that you don't get from another job? Did you have any thoughts on that? I just wrote definitely and then and then had like a little blob of ink next to that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any, uh, was there anything you were burning to ask or to, to answer with that one? I guess the word like independence came up, you know, but I'll just throw this one out there. I never really loved bosses or, or anything like that. I, maybe that's a personal issue. <laughs> so, so, but you know, one of my most influential like bosses back in the day was like the best thing you could do moving forward is work for yourself. Mm. And I think that he was just maybe making, it was a commentary on personality type more than advice that he's preaching to everyone. Oh, as in that was advice he was specifically giving you? I think so. And we're still buds, you know, so he was just making a thoughtful observation, which <laughs> um, I guess while we're on that subject, whether or not you include it, um, I had a seventh grade earth science teacher who used to be like a pro baseball player. I think he played on the Marlins. Is that a baseball team? Yeah, I think so. I think you're asking the two wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I know how much you love sports ball. So. Sportsing. Oh, yeah. Sports. Yeah. Um, sports. But... Ultimately, he wound up teaching seventh grade science because he he had to love what he was doing. And he definitely preached that in his classes was make sure you love what you do for making a living in this world because you're going to be doing a hell of a lot of it. I like that. Um, and that's always resonated with me, even, you know, at seventh grade. I don't know what I was doing, but <laughs> did you get his autograph? Oh, geez. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, outside of the craft you are in now, and this is something we've talked about a little bit before, mm -hmm. um, what other craft would you be interested in and why? Or I guess just what else in general, other than uh, you mentioned hobby gardening. But Right. I mean, I have such a respect for our friends that garden, at, or I guess you say it, farm for a living. Mm -hmm. um, just their level of knowledge and intuition about i don't know what it is just seeds and weather and dirt it's amazing um that's definitely something else i'm interested in i guess because it's one of those things that seems like a healthy healthy thing to do lifestyle wise and then as you and i have spoken about before brian pottery uh, it just our retirement plan. Our retirement plan. Fartwood Horge Pottery. <laughs> dot net. <laughs> dot earthlink dot net. Ooh. <laughs> um, those are, yeah, I guess two other crafts I'm interested in. And what, what do you think draws you to towards ceramic or making making pots specifically? Just the direct of it and the 
I mean, there's, I don't know anything about it, but it seems like such a, <laughs> such a quick process. <laughs> yeah. There seems to be an overlap with gardening in that sense of like a connection to dirt and like the earth. And I know clay isn't just straight up dirt. So please don't hate on me people. But um, I mean, would you say that that's part of it or is it just something about watching something spin around in circles that you're trying to make into a shape? I mean, I'm, I'm a simple person, as I've said before, and so I'm going to err on the side of that. I'm just watching some something spin around in circles. <laughs> and it feels like, like you have this beautiful. like one chance with, with the clay to do mm. it and to, <laughs> to do it, to make um, your pot and that Jeez, I I know so little about this, guys, to, to talk about it. <laughs> That's okay. But it feels like you just get this one opportunity to make something and you have some control over it, but it's this constant sort of learning that's going on. Um, and there's this really sort of minimal tool set up, like you're literally mm -hmm. using your hands to form the material. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and there's... Until you get into firing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah Thanks, Brian. Um, <laughs> that's why I send them off to Brian for all the firings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I'll just have a propane torch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I get. Yeah. And the other thing I should not uh, overlook is that uh, Greenwood's definitely interesting to me, and that's just thanks to my my neighbor Curtis. Uh, well, what do you wish people not involved in blacksmithing or wait, are, do you, would you call yourself a metal smith or a blacksmith or a knife maker? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess that it's, I mean, I've seen five minutes of this TV show called Forge from Fire and um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that it's not all like this, like theatrical cool looking fun and game stuff what's the reality what's the reality of it hmm jeez I feel like the reality is this like constant growth and and challenge personal challenge to you know get over this next hump um what the journey the personal mm -hmm. journey um mm. and there's people that come I guess it, I'll speak to it from knife making since that's where I'm at with it now but they come to it through historic blacksmithing like myself, or they come to it from a machine shop side of things. And that influences like what they're making and their process so much that it's really just this, you shouldn't be intimidated by knife making and all sort of the perceptions that you have to make a knife this way for it to quote unquote, be a knife. Um, mm. I see a lot of sort of very strong opinion in the knife world. And I feel like, you know, everyone has a, a valid point, but no one, there's not like one right answer out there. So just make a knife how you want to make a knife and it, that's okay. So, so maybe to sum that up, it's, it's less about adherence to someone else's definition of what a knife is and more about personal process right personal process i like that can i use that Ames? of course you can thanks <laughs> if i if i get royalties what about me? <laughs> no brian you're out <laughs> <laughs> oh bye bye <laughs> um, 
<laughs> well, uh, what is a question that you get from your clients again and again? Something that you wish prospective people looking to get a knife from you sort of knew walking into it. And even if it's just like, it's not possible to make handles out of seat cushions, like something that's that simple. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it could even be like, why does it cost that much or something? You know, like... I guess the that communicating via text message is like not my preference. That's what I'd like them to know. And what would be the best way for a prospective client to get in touch with you? Email and... You know, I don't have my phone number listed, but it's on my email. So email me and let's chat. And as you can hear, Will's got a nice voice. So he's very, he's a pleasure to talk to. <laughs> yeah, I always try to make it a point to, to you know, I prefer to talk in, over the phone or in person uh, with the customers I am fortunate to have. And I guess things just get lost in translation in a text message. I don't know. Like you seem to have a higher incident of miscommunications when things are done that way. I mean, I just lose things and I, I don't love just having a bunch of pictures from a random number in my phone that I'm supposed to, <laughs> to use as inspiration for a knife, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, that, that makes it, yeah, it's, right. it's not yeah. very organized. That's more difficult. Yeah. And I'm, be I'm getting better at letting that be known. So that's not just something people need to know, but it's um, something I need to get better at again like that personal process so will if you were to offer a piece of advice to someone who is really interested in knife making and really wants to get into it but has no idea where to start what would be where would you where would you recommend they start i would start by looking for your local blacksmith group get in touch with them and attend one of their meeting demo day things they're usually on a saturday um and are kind of and, potluck style with a demo planned and then and yeah you talk about this as if is it it's general it seems to be a pretty common thing uh these blacksmith community groups it's, like are they more or less anywhere in it, the u.s it seems i can't say for sure that they are everywhere but they seem like they exist within an hour or two of everywhere wow that's pretty cool um, that it's that common yeah it seems like it's relatively accessible and most of the older fellows want new people to show up and they will happily take you under their wings and get you set up with either like loaner tools or donations or whatever um because a lot of them are, you know, getting out of the craft and want someone to keep doing it, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And that's kind of, I'm speaking from my experience where this group in North Florida just took me under their wings and like got me a scholarship to John C. Campbell and let me borrow some tools just, just so I would have experience um, from the start. And, and for those of you who don't know what the John, John C. Campbell is, it's a folk school in Western North Carolina. Um, and they do offer, among many other things, book binding, <laughs> blacksmithing classes. Um, cool. Well, thanks, Will. I sure. Think that, yeah. That or contact me and, you know, I'm happy to, to direct you towards a local group if you're having trouble finding one. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's very generous of you. <laughs> oh, sure. Or if you're in my area, come to my shop. What if we're not in your area? Can I still come to your shop? Um, 
if your name is not Brian, <laughs> just kidding, JK. <laughs> yes, travel to my shop. Um, who is someone inside your craft that you admire, and uh, who is someone outside of your craft that you admire? Right. Okay. So this is a little bit of a difficult question because I forget how to pronounce his name. <laughs> um, so just give me a second. I know I'm going to butcher it anyways, but Sheehan, Sheehan Pruhl, he's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he's a fellow uh, knife maker that takes this more traditional Japanese approach in his work and has his sort of visual storytelling, I think on pretty good point for the digital age. And then on top of all of that, he's like a stand up guy that you can call and have an hour long conversation, even though you've never met, um, sharing with his information and, you know, has this unique experience of having apprenticed in Japan. Sounds like someone we need to get on the show. Ooh. Get him on there. Yeah. Um, and sorry if you're listening, Shihan, if I butchered your first name and or got your last name completely wrong. <laughs> well, where would be a place where we can uh, see some of his work if anyone's interested in checking it out? Um, you can find him at his website, which which is uh, shihanfineknives.com, S-H-I-H-A-N, fineknives.com, or the same name on Instagram, Shihan Fine Knives. Cool. So, yeah, and he makes these really sweet little forged garden trowels as oh. well. Oh, uh, so he even got you on the gardening frontier. <laughs> if anyone's into like giving Will a Christmas <laughs> gift, um, JK. <laughs> I'll have bought myself one long before. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. But he, yeah, he's just, he's, he seems like a stand up guy and his work is awesome. And he, I don't know, I feel like he communicates his process really well with photos and video. Yeah, it's funny how, how inspiring photos and videos can be, but then also like very daunting. Like sometimes things are just, are so good or clean looking that you're like why do i even bother <laughs> and then <laughs> right but it's nice when someone can strike that balance that's like wow this guy definitely or this person definitely knows what they're doing but uh at the same time i feel more inspired to do it myself or mm -hmm. to you know do my own version of that rather than why am i why do i bother <laughs> Right. Yeah, I definitely feel like, why do I bother often? <laughs> Which is so funny because that's how I feel when I look at your work because it's just so beautiful. <laughs> uh, we had Shihan for the knives. And then, oh, outside of your craft. Outside of my craft. Oh, golly. Um, of course, Brian Beidler and Amy Humble. <laughs> oh, come um, on. You're just saying that. No, I'm not just saying that. I have a huge collection of your books, Brian. And Amy, I don't have any of your work. <laughs> I bought a spoon, but I gave it to Curtis. Um, so, gosh, outside of my craft, there's so many. I don't know where to start. But, I mean, I admire everyone outside of my craft. <laughs> this isn't, this is not um, a ranking system. When you go on social media, who's work do you wish you owned you're always like oh man i wish i owned that thing you know a oh yeah mug from somebody or something there's two potters um one actually i i dm'd this morning about a mug akira sataki 
um, in Asheville. And then another um, potter that I guess I've just learned about is Paulina Themaporn. Themaporn? I don't know how to say her name, um, but I believe she's in California. So maybe um, we can link some of that to the podcast. Yeah, we'll definitely link that in the um, like the episode information. We'll have links yeah, in the notes for the show if anyone wants to um, look into their work. Great. Great. <laughs> On that note, if somebody wanted to see more of your work, where can they find, where's the best place to find you? Heartwoodforge.com. That's my website um, or on Instagram. And that would be at, at Heartwoodforge. And send me a message and let's <laughs> chat. Let's chat. Well, thank you so much, Will, for agreeing to come on the show and letting us pick your brain a little bit. Thanks for having me. It's good to chat with y'all. Thanks, Will. Okay. So next up, we have an interview with basket maker and self-described basket case, Beth Homacraus. So you can look for that episode two Tuesdays from today, i.e. in two weeks. And to give you a glimpse into the alliteration-filled world of birch bark basket making, here's a brief clip from that interview. During the uh, fur trading days, they would have black ash pack baskets and they would say, oh, this is a two beaver basket. Mm -hmm. And that's like how many beavers you could fit in your pack basket. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So um, I'll I'll put Kip in it and say, oh, this is like a three guinea pig basket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can't wait. All right, what else we got, Amy? Please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and to follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guesswork and to stay up to date on happenings and releases. You can also find Amy and Brian trolling around on Instagram at... (laughs) (laughs) Still funny every time. (laughs) Uh, My handle is at Amy underscore Umble and Brian's is at BHBeidler. Also, if you have any questions, interview requests, or just want to start an argument, you can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. And this week, you can send your arguments to Amy. (laughs) As before, we'd love to thank Brad Vetter for making us look like we know what we're doing with his graphic design skills. Our good friends, the High Divers, for their uh, beautiful tunes that we're listening to. Our resident poet, Justin Williams, for his commercials. And uh, once again, to Ian Karstens for... Uh, his consultation help with the technical side of things. Um, and also, as I've said, I said before, he curates his own video interview series called Glass Breakfast that you can find with a quick internet search. So yeah, we're super excited to have Beth on the show, aren't we, Amy? Very, very excited. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Now you keep your heart.